Section 7 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Elwood. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4, by James Boswell, Section 7. We trace Johnson's own character in his observations on Blackmore's magnanimity as an author. The incessant attacks of his enemies, whether serious or merry, are never discovered to have disturbed his quiet, or to have lessened his confidence in himself. Johnson, I recollect, once told me, laughing heartily, that he understood it had been said of him, he appears not to feel, but when he is alone, depend upon it, he suffers sadly. I am as certain as I can be of any man's real sentiments, that he enjoyed the perpetual shower of little hostile arrows as evidences of his fame. Various Readings in the Life of Blackmore To set engage poetry on the side in the cause of virtue. He likewise established and forced the truth of revelation. Kindness, benevolence, was a shame to favor. His practice, which was once very extensive, individuously great, there is scarcely any distemper of dreadful name of which he has not shown taught his reader how it is to be opposed to oppose. Of this contemptuous, indecent arrogance, he wrote, but produced likewise a work of a different kind, at least written, compiled with integrity. Faults which many tongues were desirous would have made haste to publish. But though he had not, could not boast of much critical knowledge, he used, waited for no felicities of fancy, or had ever elevated his mind views to that ideal perfection which every mind genius born to excel is condemned always to pursue and never overtake. The first great fundamental principle of wisdom and virtue various readings in the life of Phillips. He dreaded rival, antagonist, pope. They have not often much, are not loaded with thought. In his translations from Pindar, he will not be denied to have reached, found, the art of reaching all the obscurity of the Thebian bard. Various readings in the life of Congreve. Congreve's conversation must surely have been at least equally pleasing with his writings. It apparently requires, presupposes, a familiar knowledge of many characters. Reciprocation of similes conceits. The dialogue is quick and various sparkling. Love for love, a comedy more drawn from life, of nearer alliance to life. The general character of his miscellanies is that they show little wit and no little virtue. Perhaps, certainly, he had not the fire requisite for the higher species of lyric poetry. Various readings in the life of Tycho. Longed, long wished to pursue it. At the accession arrival of King George. Fiction unnaturally, unskillfully, compounded of Grecian deities and Gothic fairies. Various readings in the life of Akinside. For another, a different purpose a furious and unnecessary and outrageous zeal something which what he called and thought liberty 
a favorer of innovation, lover of contradiction. Warburton censure objections. His rage for liberty of patriotism. Mr. Dyson with a zeal and ardor of friendship. In the life of Littleton, Johnson seems to have been not favorably disposed towards that nobleman. Footnote. Johnson had not wished to write Littleton's life. He wrote to Lord Westcott, Littleton's brother, My desire is to avoid offense and be totally out of danger. I take the liberty of proposing to your lordship that the historical account should be written under your direction by any friend you may be willing to employ, and I will take upon myself to examine the poetry. End of footnote. Mrs. Thrale's suggestion that he was offended by Molly Aston's preference of his lordship to him. Footnote. It was not Molly Aston, but Miss Hill Boothby, of whom Mrs. Thrale wrote. She says, Such was the purity of her mind, Johnson said, and such the graces of her manner that Lord Littleton had used to strive for her preference with an emulation that occasioned hourly disgust and ended in lasting animosity. There is surely much exaggeration in this account. Let not my readers smile to think of Johnson's being a candidate for female favor. Mr. Peter Garrick assured me that he was told by a lady that in her opinion Johnson was a very seducing man. Disadvantages of person and manner may be forgotten, where intellectual pleasure is communicated to a susceptible mind, and that Johnson was capable of feeling the most delicate and disinterested attachment, appears from the following letter, which is published by Mrs. Thrale, with some others to the same person, of which the excellence is not so apparent. To Mrs. Boothby, January 1755. Dearest Madame, Though I am afraid your illness leaves you little leisure for the reception of airy civilities, yet I cannot forbear to pay you my congratulations on the new year, and to declare my wishes that your years to come may be many and happy. In this wish, indeed, I include myself, who have none but you on whom my heart reposes, yet surely I wish your good, even though your situation were such as should permit you to communicate no gratifications to Dearest Madame, yours, etc., Sam Johnson, Poswell. End a footnote. I can by no means join in the censure bestowed by Johnson on his lordship, whom he calls Poor Littleton, for returning thanks to the critical reviewers for having kindly commended his Dialogues of the Dead. Such acknowledgments, says my friend, can never be proper, since they must be paid either for flattery or for justice. In my opinion, the most upright man who has been tried on false accusation may, when he is acquitted, make a bow to his jury. And when those who are so much arbiters of literary merit, as in a considerable degree to influence the public opinion, review an author's work, Placido Lumine, when I am afraid mankind in general are better pleased with severity, he may surely express a grateful sense of their civility. Footnote. The passage which Boswell quotes in part is as follows. When they were first published, they were kindly commended by the critical reviewers, i.e., the writers and the critical review. In some of the latter editions of Boswell, these words have been printed, critical reviewers, so as to include all the reviewers who criticized the work, and poor Littleton, with humble gratitude, returned in a note which I have read, acknowledgments which can never be proper since they must be paid either for flattery or for justice. Boswell forgets 
that what may be proper in one is improper in another. Littleton, when he wrote this note, had long been a man of high position. He had stood in the first rank of opposition. He had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, and when he lost his post, he had been recompensed with a peerage. End of footnote. Various readings in the life of Littleton. He solaced himself, his grief, by writing a long poem to her memory. The production, rather, of a mind that means well than thinks vigorously, as it seems of leisure than of study, rather effusions than compositions. His last literary work, production, found the way, undertook to persuade. As the introduction to his critical examination of the genius and writings of Young, he did Mr. Herbert Croft, then a barrister of Lincoln's Inn, now a clergyman, the honor to adopt a Life of Young, written by that gentleman, who was the friend of Dr. Young's son, and wished to vindicate him from some very erroneous remarks to his prejudice. Footnote. He adopted it from indolence, writing on August 1st, 1780, after mentioning the failure of his application to Lord Westcott, he continues, There is an ingenious scheme to save a day's work, or part of a day, utterly defeated. Then what avails it to be wise? The plain and the artful man must do their own work. But I think I have got a life of Dr. Young. End of footnote. Mr. Croft's performance was subjected to the revision of Dr. Johnson, as appears from the following note, to Mr. John Nichols. This life of Dr. Young was written by a friend of his son. What is crossed with black is expunged by the author. What is crossed with red is expunged by me. If you find anything more that can be well omitted, I shall not be sorry to see it yet shorter. Footnote. By a letter to Johnson from Croft, published in the latter editions of the Lives, it seems that Johnson only expunged one passage. Croft says, Though I could not prevail on you to make any alteration, you insisted on striking out one passage, because it said that if I did not wish you to live long for your sake, I did for the sake of myself and the world. End of footnote. It has always appeared to me to have a considerable share of merit, and to display a pretty successful imitation of Johnson's style. When I mention this to a very eminent literary character, footnote, the late Mr. Burke Malone, into footnote. He opposed me vehemently, exclaiming, No, no, it is not a good imitation of Johnson. It is all his pomp without his force. It is all the nodosities of the oak without its strength. This was an image so happy that one might have thought he would have been satisfied with it, but he was not. And setting his mind again to work, he added with exquisite felicity, It is all the contortions of the Sibyl without the inspiration. Mr. Croft very properly guards us against supposing that Young was a gloomy man, and mentions that his parish was indebted to the good humor of the author of The Night Thoughts, for an assembly and a bowling green. A letter from a noble foreigner quoted, in which he is said to have been very pleasant in conversation. Mr. Langton, who frequently visited him, informs me that there was an air of benevolence in his manner but he could obtain from him less information than he had hoped to receive from one who had lived so much in intercourse with the brightest men of what had been called the Augustian Age of England, and that he showed a degree of eager curiosity concerning the common occurrences that were then passing, 
which appeared somewhat remarkable in a man of such intellectual stores, of such an advanced age, and who had retired from life with declared disappointment in his expectations. An instance at once of his pensive turn of mind, and his cheerfulness of temper, appeared in a little story which he himself told to Mr. Langton, when they were walking in his garden. Here, said he, I had put a handsome sundial with this inscription, Ehu Fungesis, which, speaking of a smile, was sadly verified, for the next morning my dial had been carried off. Footnote. Eu Fugesis, Postume, Postume, Labentur Ani. How swiftly glide our flying years. Francis. Horace. Odes. 2.14.1 the late mr james ralph told lord mccartney that he passed an evening with dr young at lord macomb's then mr doddington at hammersmith the doctor happening to go out into the garden mr doddington observed to him on his return that it was a dreadful night as in truth it was there being a violent storm of rain and wind no sir replied the doctor it is a very fine night the lord is abroad boswell End footnote. It gives me much pleasure to observe that however Johnson may have casually talked, yet when he sits, as an ardent judge zealous to his trust giving sentence upon the excellent works of Young, he allows them the high praise to which they are justly entitled. The universal passion, says he, is indeed a very great performance. His distichs have the weight of solid sentiment, and his points the sharpness of restless truth but i was most anxious concerning johnson's decision upon night thoughts which i esteem as a mass of the grandest and richest poetry that human genius has ever produced and was delighted to find his character of that work in his night thoughts he exhibited a wide display of original poetry variegated with deep reflections and striking allusions a wilderness of thought in which virility of fancy scatters flowers of every hue and every odour this is one of the few poems in which blank verse could not be charged for rhyme but with disadvantage and afterwards particular lines are not to be regarded the power is in the whole and in the whole there is a magnificence like that ascribed to chinese plantation the magnificence of vast extent and endless diversity a footnote johnson refers to chambers's dissertation on oriental gardening which was ridiculed in the heroic epistle. End footnote. But there is, in this poem, not only all that Johnson so well brings in view, but a power of the pathetic, beyond almost any example that I have seen. He who does not feel his nerve shaken, and his heart pierced by many passages in this extraordinary work, particularly by that most affecting one which describes the gradual torment suffered by the contemplation of an object of affectionate attachment, visibly and certainly decaying into disillusion, must be of a hard and obstinate frame. Footnote. Boswell refers to the death of Narcissa in the third of the night thoughts. While he was writing The Life of Johnson, Mr. Boswell was dying of consumption in to quote Young's words, the rigid north, her native bed on which bleak Boreas blew. She died nearly two years before the life was published. End of footnote. To all the other excellencies of night thoughts, let me add the great and peculiar one, 
that they contain not only the noblest sentiments of virtue and contemplations on immortality, but the Christian sacrifice, the divine propitiation, with all its interesting circumstances and consolations to a wounded spirit, solemnly and poetically displayed in such imagery and language as cannot fail to exalt, animate, and soothe the truly pious no book whatever can be recommended to young persons with better hopes of seasoning their minds with vital religion than young's night thoughts in the life of swift it appears to me that johnson had a certain degree of prejudice against that extraordinary man of which i have elsewhere had occasion to speak mr thomas sheridan imputed it to a supposed apprehension in Johnson, that Swift had not been sufficiently active in obtaining for him an Irish degree when it was solicited. But of this there was not sufficient evidence, and let me not presume to charge Johnson with injustice, because he did not think so highly of the writings of this author as I have done from my youth upwards. Yet that he had an unfavorable bias is evident were it only from that passage in which he speaks of Swift's practice of saving as first ridiculous and last detestable, and yet after some examination of circumstances finds himself obliged to own that it will perhaps appear that he only liked one mode of experience better than another, and saved merely that he might have something to give. Footnote in his economy Swift practiced a peculiar and offensive parsimony, without disguise or apology. The practice of saving, being once necessary, became habitual, and grew first ridiculous and at last detestable. But his avarice, though it might exclude pleasure, was never suffered to encroach upon his virtue. He was frugal by inclination, but liberal by principle and if the purpose to which he destined his little accumulations be remembered with his distribution of occasional charity it will perhaps appear that he only liked one mode of expense better than another and saved merely that he might have something to give End of footnote. one observation which johnson makes in swift's life should often be inculcated it may be justly supposed that there was in his conversation what appears so frequently in his letters an affectation of familiarity with the great an ambition of momentary equality sought and enjoyed by the neglect of those ceremonies which custom has established as the barriers between one order of society and another this transgression of regularity was by himself and his admirers termed greatness of soul but a great mind disdains to hold anything by courtesy and therefore never usurps what a lawful clement may take away he that encroaches on another's dignity puts himself in his power he is either repelled with helpless indignity or endured by clemency and condescension various readings in the life of swift charity may be persuaded to think that it might be written by a man of a peculiar opinions character without ill intention he did not disown deny it two by whose kindness it is not unlikely that he was indebted for advanced for his benefices with for this purpose he had recourse to mr harley sharp whom he represents describes as the harmless tool of others hate harley was slow because he was irresolute doubtful when readers were not many 
we were not yet a nation of readers. Every man who, he that could say, he knew him. Every man of known influence has so many more petitions than which he can, cannot, grant, that he must necessarily offend more than he can gratify, gratifies. Ecclesiastical performance benefices. Swift procured, contrived, an interview. As a writer, in his works, he has given very different specimens. On all common occasions he habitually assumes, affects, a style of superiority, arrogance. By the omission, neglect, of those ceremonies. That their merits filled the world, and, or, that there was no room for hope of more. I have not confined myself to the order of the lives in making my few remarks. Indeed, a different order is observed in the original publication and in the collection of Johnson's works. And should it be objected that many of my various readings are inconsiderable, those who make the objection will be pleased to consider that such small particulars are intended for those who are nicely critical in composition, to whom they will be an acceptable selection. Footnote. Mr. Chalmers here records a curious literary anecdote, that when a new and enlarged edition of the lives of the poets was published in 1783, Mr. Nichols, in justice to the purchasers of the preceding editions, printed the editions in a separate pamphlet, and advertised that it might be had gratis. Not ten copies were called for. Crocker. End of footnote. Spence's anecdotes, which are frequently quoted and referred to in Johnson's lives of the poets are in a manuscript collection made by the reverend mr joseph spence containing a number of particulars concerning eminent men to each anecdote is marked the name of the person on whose authority it is mentioned this valuable collection is the property of the duke of newcastle who upon the application of sir lucas pepys was pleased to permit it to be put into the hands of dr johnson who i am sorry to think made but an awkward return Great assurance, says he, has been given me by Mr. Spence's collection, of which I consider the communication as a favor worthy of public acknowledgment. But he has not owned to whom he was obliged, so that the acknowledgment is unappropriated to his grace. While the world in general was filled with admiration of Johnson's Lives of the Poets, there were narrow circles in which prejudice and resentment were fostered, and from which attacks of different sorts issued against him. Footnote. From this disreputable class I accept an ingenious thought, not satisfactory deference of Hammond, which I did not see till lately by the favor of its author, my amiable friend, the Reverend Mr. Beville, who published it without his name. It is a juvenile performance, but elegantly written, with classical enthusiasm of sentiment, and yet with a becoming modesty, and great respect for Dr. Johnson. Boswell. End of footnote. By some violent Whigs he was arraigned of injustice to Milton, by some Cambridge men of deprecating Gray, and his expressing with a dignified freedom what he really thought of George, Lord Littleton, gave offence to some of the friends of that nobleman, and particularly produced a declaration of war against him from Mrs. Montague, the ingenious essayist on Shakespeare, between whom and his lordship a commerce of reciprocal compliments had long been carried on. Footnote. 
Before the life of Littleton was published, there was, it seems, some coolness between Mrs. Montague and Johnson. Miss Burney records the following conversation in September 1778. Mark now, said Dr. Johnson, if I contradict Mrs. Montague tomorrow, I am determined, let her say what she will, that I will not contradict her. Mrs. Thrall, why, to be sure, sir, you did put her a little out of countenance last time she came. Dr. Johnson, why, madame, I won't answer that I shan't contradict her again if she provokes me as she did then, but a less provocation I will withstand. I believe I am not high in her good graces already, and I begin, added he, laughing heartily, to tremble for my admission into her new house. I doubt I shall never see the inside of it. Yet when they met a few days later, all seemed friendly. When Mrs. Montague's new house was talked of, Dr. Johnson, in a jocose manner, desired to know if he should be invited to see it. "'Aye, sure,' cried Mrs. Montague, looking well pleased, "'or else I shan't like it.' Mrs. Montague's dinners and assemblies, writes Raxel, were principally supported by, and they fell with, the giant talents of Johnson, who formed the nucleus around which all the subordinate members revolved. End of footnote in this war the smaller powers in alliance with him were of course led to engage at least on the defensive and thus i for one was excluded from the enjoyment of a feast of reason such as mr cumberland has described with a keen yet just a delicate pen in his observer footnote described by the author as a body of original essays i consider the observer he arrogantly continues as fairly enrolled amongst the standard classics of our native language. In his account of the Feast of Reason, he quite as much satirizes Mrs. Montague as praises her. He introduces Johnson in it, annoyed by an impertinent fellow, and saying to him, Have I said anything good, sir, that you do not comprehend? No, no, replied he. I perfectly well comprehended every word you have been saying. Do you so, sir? said the philosopher, that I heartily ask pardon of the company for misemploying their time so egregiously. End of footnote. End of section 7.